Hello, welcome everyone to Connected Learning TV. Um, we are here to kick off a month-long series um, in April uh, called Equity and Learning in the 21st Century Classroom. Explore, connect, transform. So I'm Christina Cantrell. I work at the National Writing Project. I have the great honor to work with all these educators at the Writing Project. And um, we uh, are going to um, meet throughout this month um, to explore these issues. Uh, we're inspired by a new book that was just published by uh, the MacArthur Digital Media and Research Hub um, in collaboration with the National Writing Project called Teaching in the, Collect Teaching in the Connected Learning Classroom. So I'm really excited to host today and thank you everybody for being with us. Um, I just wanted to say a few words about this book. It's um, a collection of examples of connected learning classroom practices that were originally shared at NWP's Digital Is website. It's unique in its focus on in-school work and includes vignettes, stories, inquiries from about 18 different classrooms. It includes the voices of about 24 educators and their students. And so throughout April on Tuesdays, so there's five Tuesdays in April, so we hope you'll join us. We're going to um, really um, look at some of the themes that are woven throughout those and some of the issues that come up when you bring those stories together. Um, and we want to really particularly focus on equity and learning. So um, throughout the month we'll be meeting with sort of a cross-section of folks. Today we have a bunch of people who were either editors, contributors to the book, and then um, throughout the month we'll bring uh, more people on to uh, talk about these cross-themes, as well as researchers and colleagues in the field who can um, discuss these questions with us. And we're really interested in um, offering teaching in the Connected Learning Classroom as an opportunity for conversation. So this is really the beginning of that. So thanks, everyone. Um, another thing that we just kicked off in relation to this book, too, is a new hashtag called Where We Learn. And uh, Nicole, maybe you could tell us real quickly about that? Yes, hi, everybody. Um, when we called the book Teaching in the Connected Learning Classroom, uh, we actually wanted to expand what the word classroom actually means. Many of us automatically think of just the four walls in a school building, uh, but when you take a look at the book and all of the people that wrote about their learning contexts, classroom is actually a much broader term. We're learning in many different spaces, both inside and outside of schools. And so we wanted to show everyone that in the 21st century, uh, where we learn uh, can be in many different places. So if you go to Twitter and you look for the hashtag where we learn, you'll see a listing uh, that has already been put up by many people of all the different amazing places that they learn. So if you're interested, please post a picture uh, and keep adding to this conversation to show where you learn with young people. Great. Thanks, Nicole. And um, yeah, we're hoping that these images and these ideas will carry us um, through our conversation today and also inform um, uh, our discussions throughout the month. So we encourage you to, to share and tweet with us. A couple quick questions on the logistical end. So those participating in the live stream right now, please use the chat there to introduce yourselves, to connect with each other, and to ask questions that you'd like to address here in the Hangout. And John, who is behind the scenes, will um, bring us those questions as you raise them. Um, we're also chatting throughout the month at the Where We Learn hashtag, but also through Connected Learning. So we encourage you to use hashtag Connected Learning, all one word, and connect to the Connected Learning Google Plus community. 
we also, there's, John will put in a link for the public group notes, uh, that's a Google document that everybody can use today and use that to capture highlights and share resources related to our conversation. So great, thanks. Um, why don't we get started? Um, I was going to ask all my colleagues here to introduce themselves and kind of, um, you know, share a little bit also about your contributions to the ebook since um, all of us participated in that, and maybe then um, uh, share your own where we learn for the group today. So, Antero, maybe you can, as the lead editor on this book, maybe you can start us off. Sure. Thanks, Christina. Hi, everybody. My name is Antero Garcia. Uh, I'm currently at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado, uh, by way of Los Angeles, where I was teaching for a while. And uh, my initial understandings of connected learning came from my spaces in my classroom there. Um, where I presently learn is not this space, which is kind of my cramped office that's messy and has posters with bad words on it that I found out in my last webinar. Um, but I tend to learn uh, in my backyard when it's not too cold. We've had crazy wind lately. Um, or on my couch or places where that require the least amount of physical activity for me to be able to see and enjoy nature um, while also having uh, some sort of connection to a glowing device. And we'll talk about technology probably later throughout this webinar to some extent. Um, but I'm excited to be here, so thanks, Christina. Sorry, Cliff. You're the next on my screen. Would you go? Sorry, I think you said Cliff, right? Yes, Cliff. Sorry, Cliff. Hi, everybody. Uh, I am the professor at St. Mary's College of California in the Bay Area and uh, Silver Ontario. I was at uh, UCLA for doctoral studies in urban education. Prior to that, I was teaching in the high school classroom in English and social studies and media arts. So. Similar to Ontario, also built a lot of the connected learning ideologies in my own classroom through various uh, activities, projects, um, just different things that I work with the uh, youth on. Um, I guess while staying on the theme of uh, how we learn, different than Ontario, I actually started thinking that I do a lot of learning as I'm like listening to either like TED radio talks or things while I'm running or. NPR or This American Life or different random things like that or even developing a lot of new ideas when I'm showering in the bathroom. So uh, we all have different places where we learn, I guess. And um, my contribution to the ebook was in the production centered chapter. And um, Jason, who's also on the panel, is one of the uh, examples I kind of highlighted that demonstrates many different facets of this. So this is kind of a plug for Jason to talk about that part a little bit. All right. Next. Excellent. Great. Yes, Jason, take it take it away. All right. Can you hear me okay? Great. Uh, so my name is Jason Sellers. Uh, I'm an academic technology coordinator at uh, the French American International School here in San Francisco. Um, prior to that, I was a high school English teacher uh, for a few years, uh, as, at first at a rural school um, near St. Louis, which is where I'm from, uh, and then at East Palo Alto uh, Phoenix Academy. Uh, here in the Bay Area. I'm also the uh, academic, uh, I'm sorry, I'm the tech liaison for the Bay Area Writing Project and uh, we do a uh, PD series for teachers called uh, What the Tech is Going On, uh, which uh, meets uh, Saturday uh, on a Saturday um, each month. Um, so the, the resource I had is called uh, Interactive Fiction Game Design. Uh, so I had uh, students in an English class that I was working with 
uh, create interactive uh, fiction games, which are text-based adventure games, uh, and then they shared those games uh, in a community of other interactive fiction game designers. So we were trying to work on our uh, descriptive uh, storytelling skills. Um, where my learning takes place, that's a great question. Uh, it takes place, uh, I've got a, a nice uh, chair uh, by a window in my apartment, uh, so I do a lot of reading there and uh, surfing online. Um, and also, you know, it takes place uh, at work. Um, my current role is I, I work with a lot of teachers, uh, and so I have a lot of conversations with teachers and go grab coffee together. And I, I think in conversations are, are where most um, ideas seem to come up for me. Thank you. Um, and Kylie, you're next. Hi, I'm Kylie Pepler. I'm an assistant professor of learning sciences at Indiana University, and it was with a huge pleasure that they invited me to write the foreword for this volume because it, it's it been a, an ongoing collaboration with the National Writing Project and many of the speakers here today um, as, as we've been collaborating on, on uh, creating and co-creating this, this curriculum over the last four years. And so, um, so I've gotten a unique insight into the design process in which uh, National Writing Project educators really engage in. And I think it's it's so countercultural to the ways in which the media talks about um, uh, teachers and educational systems today. And, and it really, um, a lot of that discourse deprives the teacher of thinking about the agency that they have in designing these learning experiences. And, and I think what's so beautiful about this volume is all these narratives really come together to, to really um, give voice to all of this effort. So when I think about where we learn, I think about uh, participating in communities of practice like the National Writing Project and like our, our seminar today, and thinking about how much I've learned um, from participating in the design process and, and co-designing with the National Writing Project educators, but also um, how much I learned from, from uh, sessions like this today where we, we take a moment to sit and reflect on, on all of that thinking and all of that practice over time. Great. Thank you, Kylie. Uh, and Nicole. Hi, everybody. I'm Nicole Mira. I'm a researcher at the UCLA Graduate School of Education. And I also help coordinate an after-school program called the UCLA Council of Youth Research. Uh, and I'm a proud member of the UCLA Writing Project. Um, I was really excited to start this, this hashtag, and I encourage everyone to go over to Twitter and check it out, because there's some amazing pictures of learning happening in so many spaces. Um, I'd say that where I learn, uh, obviously in communities, uh, both Cliff and Ontario were classmates of mine at UCLA, and we've kept that network going. Uh, and also, in terms of the Council of Youth Research, I think we often forget that learning happens in after-school places and can often be very informal. So I posted a picture up there of my um, students and I out to dinner when we went to a conference in San Francisco to present. And so I think it's important to think that even while we're breaking bread, we're learning. Even when we're sitting on bus rides being silly, we're learning, uh, in addition to online and classroom spaces. Great, thank you, Nicole. And um, let me just take a moment to introduce myself too. I um, work for the National Writing Project as the Senior Program Associate here, and I'm based in Philadelphia. And I've been working with both the National and the Philadelphia Writing Project for many years. And um, so my hash, my um, the title of my blog is Learning in Community, and that's really where I learn. And like similar to Kylie, um, really connected to these. Um, uh, communities of practice and these professional communities of practice it's been very um, so I learned both from um, 
the educators I work with as well as their youth and um, the writing project is very much about going public with your work and uh, sharing your practices and then we designed Digital Is to support a similar um, to be a forum to support similar work and so that's a place that I really learn and I tweeted that out earlier yesterday I think um, and Digital Is is actually I was hoping that could be a segue, actually, <laughs> to um, Digital Is as a source, too, for, um, I think, some of the inspiration for this book and, um, and the stories that we brought together um, for this collection. So, Ontario... So, I think Christina just got uh, kicked off for a second, but I, I think I know what her first question was going to be. Go for it, Nicole. Sorry about that, guys. <laughs> we were all scared that you were gone. Yeah, uh, disappeared. We're throwing it over to Ontario to really start us off with thinking about what the uh, impetus was for, for coming up with the idea for this book in the first place and then how it developed to this beautiful product that we have with us today. That's that so suspenseful. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know where we were going, and then uh, Christina disappeared. Uh, I guess I, I guess I want to first say that it's really an honor to be uh, on this webinar with all of you in the creepy bubble person that's also on the Google Hangout, but also with the with the nearly 40 educators across the country that helped contribute to. I think a powerful collection of uh, a, a collection that that helps function politically, which I want to talk about in a second. In terms of digital is, I, I want to come back to the hashtag that Nicole started and that people have been contributing to um, of where we learn, right? Because I, I talked informally about where I learn and, and that context has shifted, you know, from day to day, from year to year. Um, but the context of a hashtag for where we learn for our students today, primarily, uh, and the vast majority of students that are going to be exposed to connected learning, it's going to happen in our schools today, right? And so I think the reason this work started to begin with was really to highlight the kinds of connected learning work that was already happening. I, I'm tired of guidebooks and professional development and hoity-toity professors like myself that come into schools and tell teachers what they need to be doing, right? Instead, we know that teachers are the experts in the, in the spaces that they should be in, and this is an opportunity for them to reclaim and demonstrate the kinds of work that's happening. So when you open up the Teaching in the Connected Learning Classroom book, and it's free, so, so you should, um, but when you open it up, the, the things you're going to see are, are myriad examples, right? Um, for the most part, I'd say the, the editors of each chapter, like Nicole, Cliff, and myself, uh, we try to get out of the way as much as possible to, to really allow the voices of teachers to, to represent what happens in varied contexts, to see what happens in the spaces where they learn, because every classroom is different. Um, and so in putting this together, I think about both the National Rhyme Project and the Digital Is uh, resources that, that share writing you know, across the country globally um, all of the time. And I think about the teachers next door to me when I was in Los Angeles. So um, the teacher next to me, Mark Gomez, worked with ninth graders um, to document the 20-year anniversary of the Los Angeles riots at the time that happened in and around the school area we were teaching. Um, and while they use Twitter for some of the live updates of what they're doing, the biggest mode of technology that, that Mark's classroom used was the public transportation system, right, and using the bus to, to do a tour um, of their own community and thinking about, you know, how do we respond to, how do we understand history in the spaces around us, right? It was connected learning in action. Um, and I think, again, I think this is what we're already doing. Um, and this should be a book to celebrate teachers, um, for teachers to own the work we're doing, and to empower other teachers to think about the possibilities of what can happen in everybody's classroom. Uh, so as I said earlier, I think that this is a political book um, in that it's about the teaching profession in a time when the teaching profession has a lot of attention on it um, by people who aren't necessarily educators to allow the tacit knowledge of teachers um, to 
to guide some of the conversation that we're happening about. And this should be an equity issue, right? So to think about schools in all kinds of contexts, rural, urban, suburban, to think about all schools being able to engage in the same kinds of connected learning opportunities in personalized and specific format forms. And then finally, I think it's political because this is about teachers as researchers, right? So it's not best practices where this is teachers sharing, you know, here's what I did in my classroom, and you should do the same thing. Here's the worksheets for you to photocopy. But this is, you know, this is that line of inquiry that I thought about as a teacher, right? This is what I was thinking about in terms of interactive fiction in my classroom, as Jason talks about. How do I follow that thread to make sure that my students um, are, are getting the best kinds of connected learning practices um, in their classroom, which is going to be very different from what uh, Cliff was using in his classroom, right, or what Nicole was using in her classroom. Um, so in that sense, again, uh, I just want to reiterate how, how honored I am to, to see the amazing work that's come out of this and that continues to engage in conversation in spaces like digital is. I don't know if I has to pass it back to Nicole or Christina. That's all. <laughs> I was going to um, encourage us to open up this conversation. Thank you, Ontario, and thank you for um, organizing us to, to pull this together. It's been a wonderful experience and um, learning for us all, I know. And um, this idea of you really grounded us in sort of this commitment we have to talking about connected learning between the hours of 9 to 3 when um, uh, uh, most uh, youth are in school and really making that a space um, and part of a um, key equity conversation. A question just came through from the live stream that I know Cliff wants to respond to, and I'd like um, to kick off with this question, how can connected learning relate and benefit to long-term language learners and ESL students? Um, which I think is a key question in this conversation. Um, so Cliff, do you want to pick that up and then I'll let anybody else respond to this basic idea of, that, of the classroom space and the conversations that come up in, within that? Yeah, um, you know, it's really interesting. When I started doing digital stories in my classroom now, Oh man, it's like over a decade a decade ago now, and um, most of my students were English language learners, whether they're still under that label or have been redesignated um, as fluent English English readers and writers speakers. But one of the things that I it didn't really hit me until I did this project was the aspect of creating a digital story. And for those who are unfamiliar with it, it's uh, you can kind of think of it as putting narration over still images and music over it. But um, without going into details of it, one of the things that really stood out to me is often you know, we focus on the reading and writing aspects for uh, as particular long-term language learners, but we you know, don't do much for the speaking and listening part. But what I found in my project was uh, students going through multiple, I'm talking about in the 10s to 20 to 30 different iterations of recording their voices to get their narr narration just right with their partner, where students were even talking about, you know, one student didn't, you know, pronounce certain words quite the way that she heard it uh, when she re-listened to her piece, and then she asked her partner to, you know, uh, you know, read it for her and practice it without recording, recording, listening, recording. But this whole recursive process was really eye-opening for me because I was just thinking there's no way I could have pushed for that to happen from a teacher perspective driven by the fact they're producing an authentic artifact for an authentic audience with a real purpose, which was telling a story of an immigrant's journey to the United States. And so that was really my first inkling, I think, before all of the, this um, ebook came out, just the ideas and the power of utilizing 
some of these tools, but sometimes just the structures that facilitates the types of learning that we might not be able to re reproduce in a kind of traditional classroom setting. That's great. Thanks, Cliff. And Nicole, you wanted to add something? I think you should go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to add to what Cliff was saying. I think that, and this kind of relates back to why there's such a focus in our series of webinars about why schools and why teachers are so important in the connected learning process. Um, language learners obviously need to be practicing not only their first language, but the second language as much as possible. And I think that if we think about connected learning as something that only happens after school hours, when there are also many issues that come up with the access that students have to digital devices and to opportunities to create and to connect after school, it would be a disservice to, to them as language learners and to all of our students if we weren't doing this work during the school day. I think it's really dangerous to think that connected learning is somehow um, an extra or something that happens um, at the, that's like outside of school or somehow seen as more uh, digital or more fun or more connected, whereas academic learning is not. I think that's a very... Uh, uh, kind of incorrect assumption to make and uh, so I think that all the different ways that I could see connected learning assisting language learners I, I know that there's practice that my students could do by speaking to other folks uh, around the country and around the world through the internet so they can practice idioms they can practice their uh, developing skills and I think that's true for all students that all of us are apprentices when it comes to academic language it's not something that any of us naturally do all the time uh, and thinking about using digital tools to, to get students interested and engaged in connecting with others and trying out these different forms of language uh, is a really exciting possibility that connected learning offers us. So I think that's just something that I wanted to throw in. That's great, Nicole. Yes, thank you. And I think that often it comes up when talking about connected learning that, um, you know, it's a framework for a focus on interest-driven and socially oriented practices, but how does that support academically oriented work too and um, academic content instruction and then how does that relate I would say just to dive right into it to uh, standards and also to assessments so I'm wondering if anybody um, wants to pick up on on this conversation and go further with those ideas sure I'm happy to I, I think one of the things that everybody's describing here is this web of networks and how how much deeper students can engage in in their everyday practices and then connect to academic content and so if you think about the kinds of experiences we've all had when you have this isolated experience in the classroom and it's not connected to your everyday you know a lot of times in mathematics in, in particular you'll hear students say you know but really what am I going to use this for right and I think it's a valid critique and, and that's really at the heart of what I see connected learning really trying to tackle in schools is that it is connected. It is uh, relevant to what you're going to be learning outside of these uh, four walls. And I think that that's also, you know, every teacher kind of knows that they want to capitalize on, on what youth are already interested in, whether that's a new video game or so forth. They really want to strive to connect it to the academic content. How, how we go about that, um, the ways in which we create those invitations are a struggle, and, um, and so much of what's contained in this volume are different ways that will inspire um, you to think about your own setting, but um, but also I, I think even, you know, in higher education as a parent um, in any setting, you can really think about how you can take this context and move it across. I think we've learned those lessons, say, in media studies a while back um, when we looked at TV and the role of learning. The kids that watch those programs with the parents actually turn out to learn the content. And it 
and I think reason for that is is that parents end up connecting. Well, remember you watched this Dora episode, and remember this this um, language term that you that you were encountered there, or remember, hey, on Sesame Street, um, uh, you know, we they talked about. Um, you know what you should do if, if a stranger talks to you, and 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 how to handle those kinds of social situations. And so the parents are always connecting for the students. And we find actually that's when the content, the academic part, is um, is then noticeable. And we can actually test and find traces of that. Um, and so kids watching it alone, um, are, it's not, uh, it doesn't have the same kind of value. And so I think as as we think about pushing our school walls out further, and we try to connect to kids' everyday experiences, and we think about home. And, and all of the learning that happens in these rich settings of where we learn in life, um, that it just increases and triples the outcomes that we have for our academic environment. Uh, I think on ARA this month, they just talked about this the same kind of, of phenomenon. So I, I think we're seeing, seeing this again and again and again across all levels of, of the research. That's great. Does anyone want to add to that? I was thinking about how um, these rich connections and these connections to home and um, uh, but in, it, in thinking about equitable access, we want to make sure that all kids have this or all youth have these opportunities. So um, what, are, what are some of our responsibilities in school and um, as we push the school walls out further? What, what does some of that look like? Well, Jason, I was wondering, um, maybe, do you want to share a little bit about um, some of the ways you've been doing this in your context, even? Sure. Uh, so, uh, in the in the position that I'm in right now, um, I'm actually at a school that has a one-to-one uh, -one iPad program. Uh, prior to that, I was at a school where we had one computer lab, you know, that was uh, shared by, by everyone in the school and you had to reserve time in that computer lab. Uh, so in terms of what I've seen, you know, uh, um, as a teacher um, and equitable, equitable ask, access to technology, um, you know, the, the computer lab that we had at the, at the charter school, uh, which was serving low-income students, was used primarily for uh, test prep or, or to administer um, tests um, and generate data on, um, you know, learning that, you know, we then used in other ways. Um, at the school that I'm at right now, um, students are encouraged to use technology in ways that um, um, are more in, in line with uh, the uh, principles of connected learning, and, and we really encourage them to kind of push the envelope um, with technology. Um, so I think um, when it comes to um, equity and, and technology, I, I think that access is, is certainly still an issue, uh, at least in my experience, but um, I think the... the um, issue kind of um, on the horizon is is more um, how do we uh, see what students are, are how do we see differently you know what students are doing capable of doing with technology and, and how much access do we give them um, or how much freedom do we give them with that technology? Um, at the school that I'm at right now, we actually have, you know, an unrestricted uh, access policy for the internet. Uh, there, there's no filtering of any kind, and, and we've kind of taken the approach to uh, um, teach our students. We're, we're kind of using the common sense uh, media um, curriculum they've developed to kind of uh, instill in our students certain um, values uh, and um, ways of, of behaving and participating online and, and then to kind of, you know, to, to, to take that approach rather than restricting access. Mm 
Oh, that's really interesting. Thank you. Um, and I think actually, hopefully, you can share some of those resources on the live stream because the common sense media resources are really useful. Um, Cliff, do you want to add to that? Um, yeah, sure. You know, I, I think Christine, you know, asked me to speak a little bit about just like, you know, under resource schools, and I know you know several of the folks here can speak to that. I think just a natural tendency for most urban educators is you have to do a certain level of hustling just because you might not have access to all the different things at your school. And I, I remember that, you know, various workshops is always one of the questions, what if we don't have a whole laptop card or a whole computer lab for our youth? And I just think about some of my friends that are uh, teachers and how they're able to, you could even buy just like, um, I just looked online on digital recorders for under $25, just even getting a few of them. And you can practice like interviewing skills. You can practice like, you know, practicing voice and uh, narration and all these different things, just being able to record, re-listen, you know, play it back in with smartphones that, you know, most kids have access to today. You can use that. You can create blogs that I know teachers have done where they just record on their laptop and they publish it online for, a, again, an authentic audience. Um, the other aspects of even just not tech related kind of you know building on what Jason described is just um, as part of a project called Exploring Computer Science where the explicit goal is to bring in historically marginalized groups into computer science namely women, blacks, and Latinos and um, many of our projects is not your traditional automaton in a you know computer lab all night with Mountain Dew programming but teaching the computational thinking practices that doesn't require any of the technologies like you know in order to understand binary their binary number systems you can do things that are actually group oriented and um, active and uses kinesthetic learning and these different multiple intelligence um, and these are the types of computational high high level computational thinking practices we're pushing for when we're developing you know even the economic uh, data saying we need more techno technologists in the field these are types of skills that are ne necessary, not just simply being able to program, but to think like a computer programmer, think like a computer scientist. So just a couple of the ideas. Super, thank you. And Ontario, you'd like to pick up on that? Yeah, I just want to echo like the power of like the Exploring Computer Science program as, as something that I'd work with. But also in terms of, uh, I think, I think typically educators and educational researchers tend to look at the lack of technology in schools as a scapegoat for why we shouldn't be using connected learning in, in classrooms or why the research opportunities in um, perhaps low-income schools uh, is more difficult right, in terms of access. And I think that's, that's a dangerous path to follow. And I think the, uh, the other side of that coin is that technology is often seen as this mythical panacea that in some ways if we give students, you know, the fancy device of the day, the I, whatever it is, that somehow test scores are going to rise and, and everyone will be better, more engaged citizens. And, and frankly, we know that's not the case because we've been following educational technology for the past 80 years and, and with every innovation, this is the new assumption of what's going to happen. Uh, and, and that's definitely not the case. And so uh, I would just want to emphasize something that, that comes across throughout the case studies in the book that connected learning isn't about technology, right? It's really about the dispositions of um, peer-driven um, academically oriented learning that can happen in classrooms and how teachers should be able to support students regardless of you know uh, whether the Wi-Fi is up or not. One of the one of the editors of the book will be a guest later in the month, but Hunt talks about like the danger of the big shiny objects, right? And and us falling in love with fancy objects. And he's someone who should know. He's he's implementing you know a one-to-one -one iPad program in, in his in his school district right now. 
um, in a really powerful way that they've talked about in other spaces. Um, but he's also cautious of you know letting teachers just get enamored with what technology can do, or what re or allowing researchers just get enamored with this. So just wanted to to throw that out as as a tension or a caution. Excellent, great. And Cliff, you wanted to add something? Yeah, I forgot to mention. You know, when Ontario is talking about how. Um, moving away from kind of a deficit view of like, oh, we don't have this, we don't have access to this, and even tapping into what Tari also, you know, talked about community cultural wealth, and when she's specifically looking at like un materially unprivileged communities, historically marginalized communities, and what they do have, what types of capital they do bring in a classroom, and she outlines it very nicely, you know, talking about aspirational, familial, social, navigational, linguistic, and resistant, capital, but I also think about these types of things that we're talking about in the digital new media age and how our kids are using this, you know, ubiquitously all the, you know, every single day, many more times and often than adults do, but we don't tap into that capital and utilize those for traditional learning type processes. Um, and it's a, it's a real missing link, I feel like, that we're trying to tap into with some of the ideas in the ebook. And also, just to give you, for folks that want to learn a little bit more information about exploring computer science, it's uh, exploringcs.org, so if you want to look into it. That's great. Thank you. Anyone want to add? So um, I guess one of the things that it made me think about personally was just going back to what Kylie talked about with the sort of uh, communities of practice and network communities of practice. I mean, I think that as educators and the educators in this collection, for sure, are, are framing themselves and talking about themselves as learners, um, you know, kind of alongside their youth also as learners and often actually youth as teachers. <laughs> and, and you'll see that throughout the book. So, um, and I do think that this raises sort of you know, how is it that we're learning today as um, adults and professionals in, in these network communities? And how do we, and connected learning describes a really networked and ecological approach to learning overall, and as, as um, Antara said, the participatory nature of this work. So um, what are some of the um, complexities of this when we start to look at in-school spaces as well as some of the possibilities. Maybe we could talk about that and think about that together. Kylie, did you want to go? Um, yeah, Christina, I, I lost your audio for a second. Can you just repeat the question one more time? Oh, well, I was just thinking about how um, so many of us are learning in these networked ways um, and within communities of practice and among each other and wondering, and in the ebook, there's so much about um, teachers in the role of learners and also students and youth in the role of teachers um, and that real dynamic space. So I just wanted to sort of talk about that a little bit in connection to schools and um, communities and making that available to all young learners today. Yeah, I think you're highlighting a really great point, uh, Chris, because 
you know, in, in a, a connected learning community, this division between the practitioner and the students, you know, this traditional hierarchy um, that we all envision, you know, even, even my five-year-old when he's playing school and he hasn't even been to school yet, um, it, you know, has this hierarchy where he's, he's teaching me something and I have to sit and listen, right? So it's very deeply ingrained and, and who knows where, where people pick this up, but it's very hard, you know, speaking as an in-service and, and pre-service teacher educator, it's very hard to flip those assumptions and so the only way we can really do it is to experience it um, to a as as a practitioner we need to become comfortable with um, learning from our students and that can be very uncomfortable but it's actually the key um, thing about inviting new technologies inviting youth culture inviting um, this blurring of the boundaries is that you, you there's things you don't know and and I think the bonus of this is that um, you actually get to enjoy your job because if you're learning on the job and you're learning from your students and all of a sudden you know you're learning something new and it brings a, a new joy um, to the work um, so, I, so I invite everybody that that might have some um, uh, hesitancy to really think about what it might be to sort of set up your community in a way that you can learn from others within it. Um, what that often means is kids are teaching their instructors about Minecraft, telling them the ins and outs. You know, I'm learning, you know, from my son all about all of the nitty-gritty trivia right now of Star Wars as we kind of move across all of this various Star Wars pieces, you know, from Angry Birds Star Wars to Angry Birds Star Wars 2 to um, all, all sorts of things, right? And, and so so, you know, we're just sort of rediscovering all of those narratives, all of the interesting um, textual connections, all of those things. Um, and so as we as we blur those boundaries, you know, you get to you get to learn something about new communities that you've never taken part in. You get to think about the connections to the existing ones. Um, and and you know, it just increases the sort of creative capacities of that community. I think for students you know, as we, as we know, although we don't use it all the time, is that being able to teach is the best learning experience that you can actually give a child. So when you, when you offer them an opportunity to legitimately teach you something, it is a really great educational opportunity for them and um, starts to build this trust in that relationship where, um, where, you know, you can venture out and say, oh, actually, that's connected um, to what we're doing over here in language art. So that's connected over here to this math concept or probability or, you know, what, whatever it is. Um, so it, it forges this legitimate conversation um, for those connections that you'd like to see happening. Um, so, so I think I think that that's a big, you know, that power differential and really questioning that is is really a huge finding and and really key to sort of building the communities that we'd like to see in the future. I'd just add to this. I think I think this really is a shift in how we're talking about the teaching profession today. Um, in that. I think typically we, we talk about educators as moving from novice teachers who are, are terrified and lost in the classroom, which is often how I felt most of my career as a teacher, um, to moving from, from novices to masters, right? That all, at one point you become an expert and that's the trajectory of becoming a teacher. And really I think, I think if we think about this community of growth and these tensions, it's about this lifelong growth, right? Like how do teachers continue to challenge, continue to grow as the context around them changes, right? So it's not just simply a personal growth, but a community that's changing, right? We're always in motion with, with where we're going with the, the kinds of teaching practices we're doing. So I'll just throw that out. And I think Jason was going to jump in. Yeah, uh, to kind of continue what Antero was saying, you know, I, I think, you know, when you talk about um, um, 
kind of embracing, you know, the, the network capacity, you know, of, of, of connected learning, uh, you, the role of the teacher is really shifting, you know, away from the teacher being the expert in the classroom. Um, I remember I had a moment last year where we were about to read uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s um, letter from a Birmingham jail, and I'd prepared a presentation to kind of give some background on what was happening in 1962 in Birmingham, Alabama, um, and I, I just launched into that presentation, and I, I stopped myself, and I realized, you know, they, ha they have access to the internet, you know, um, why am I, you know, why am I presenting this information, and we kind of, we took a couple minutes where everyone kind of went online and tried to find out some things that were happening in Birmingham, Alabama in 1962, and, and we had a conversation about that, uh, so my role as the teacher then, I, I was no longer the expert telling them what they needed to know, um, you know, in that context, um, the students um, kind of took on that role, um, so I, I, I think a lot of times, you know, um, I, I think the teacher becomes more of a coach, and, and as teachers, um, I, I think in connected learning, what we do is we introduce a tool and we show students how to use that tool. Um, in the example of um, the interactive fiction project um, that we did in my English class, um, rather than kind of present to students a step-by-step -step way, and a quick primer, uh, interactive fiction uh, is um, text-based adventure games. I don't know if any of you remember in the 1980s, uh, games like Zork. Uh, there's no graphics. You have to type things like go north, pick up lantern, uh, and, and everything. You interact with the game by, by typing out these commands. Uh, so the reason we, we use this in our English class was because um, that restriction of, of having to, to use um, uh, descriptive imagery to make your game engaging was something that we were trying to focus on uh, in our English class. Um, so, but rather than present to students, uh, you know, a step-by-step -step, uh, instructions for how to create an interactive fiction game, um, uh, what we did was we, we looked at some resources that these interactive fiction game designers used uh, and also a feature of uh, Playfic, which was the uh, platform that we used to create these games, uh, which enabled you to look at the source code behind any game that was published in this community, and we learned a lot that way as well. Uh, so as a teacher, you know, I, I was kind of there to say, you know, prod them to, to use these resources uh, rather than solving problems when they encountered them to encourage them to you know take advantage of the resources that are available to, to people who are using this programming language um, real quick uh, you know uh, one of my students ran into a problem she made a, a, a game where uh, she had this pinata hat and you had to lift up the pinata hat and underneath the pinata hat you had to get the secret sauce the secret taco sauce and that, that was a key to, to winning her game uh, so uh, she had a problem where the, the tilde over the N in pinata wasn't being recognized by the code in the game, and she spent a lot of time, you know, online troubleshooting until she finally arrived at that conclusion. But I think that's a valuable uh, uh, realization that she had, which uh, you know, uh, the experience of going through code line by line and, and troubleshooting um, is is an experience similar to what programmers go through, and and so she was able to have that uh, experience. So I think giving students these tools and the ability to to uh, to solve them and to encourage them to kind of push through those challenges becomes the role of the teacher. Go ahead, Nicole. Yeah, I just wanted to pick up on this idea of, I know there's a few themes that we've brought up during this hour, one being that connected learning does not necessarily have to be about technology. Uh, it's more about the connection, and I wanted to come back to that idea from what Jason and Ontario were saying. Um, but I was thinking about how this is obviously a process that not only do teachers have to unlearn some of the things that, that have been ingrained in the system of public education, but our students do as well. So I know that as a teacher, uh, it can be tempting to hear these ideas and then try to go to your classroom and say to your students, like, okay, like, what do you, I'm, I'm, I'm flipping the script, what do you guys think? 
Uh, and it's not that always that simple of a process because students have been socialized into a system of what education means just as much as teachers have. Uh, and so that's why I think that this idea of connection is so important because it takes time to build the relational trust and to start changing the paradigm of what school can look like. Or especially when you're one teacher within a school building, when students are going to different classes all during the day, and it takes a while for this kind of culture to take root. Um, so I definitely would encourage teachers who are interested in trying this out, not only to start building slowly the connections with their students that are going to lead to this kind of risk-taking, but also to take advantage of the connections that are out there for professional learning, either through the National Writing Project, through Digital Is, know that you don't need to reinvent the wheel. There are resources out there where people have tried this, and can give you, you know, uh, suggestions about first steps to take because I feel like if we as teachers are not comfortable with the tools and with the the process of teaching in this way, then we're it, we're, we're going to be very hesitant to introduce this to our classroom. And at the same time, this relates back to the issues of equity and access because uh, many times administrators, other folks in schools, because they've been socialized into this model where technology is dangerous and the outside world is dangerous and we need to keep it out to keep our kids safe. Uh, in order to change that paradigm, we need to, you know, and change these restrictive policies we have. I taught at a school that had a zero tolerance policy for any any technology. Um, and in order to change that, we really need to be proactive instead of uh, leaving our administrators frightened. We need to basically show them the possibilities, show them what is possible and, and what can be done so that everyone can start to kind of move forward in this journey of learning together and not have uh, a sense of conflict or, you know, uh, one stakeholder against another. And so I think a lot of the examples that you're, we're hearing about this hour kind of show ways forward for those who are just taking those first steps. That's great. Thank you, Nicole. And I'm, I'm struck by, you know, sort of the, the importance of um, talking through the possibilities and really thinking about, you know, all the ways that kids can connect and expand their, their even basic literacy practices, Jason. That's like one of the things that I've been hearing you talk about. And then also really surface the nuances of this work, uh, Nicole, and um, the complexity of it, too. And um, so I wanted to sort of... Um, bring us back because this work is so complex and and just because actually um, Kylie you've been triggering it a lot as you talk as a parent too I mean I know that you know we've been when we talk about educators we're really thinking about both educators who teach in school out of school K3 university um, as well as parents and that we're all part of this complex opportunity of building connected learning um, uh, uh, experiences and opportunities for youth and um, but there is a lot of nuance and complexity in this and you talk about being um, kind of co-designers together so I was wondering if you could sort of talk about that in in this context and how that supports us in in getting to this nuance together right you know I think <clears throat> there's kind of a larger battle that that we're facing I think in, in education in general about thinking about adopting sort of parallels to sort of the medical industry, to thinking about, uh, you know, the hard sciences and how can we make social sciences and educational research more, more like um, what's happening in the medical testing industry. But the reality is, is that these scripted curriculums, this one-size-fits-all, it actually doesn't even fit the medical model. I mean, can you imagine if we all had to take the same pill on Tuesday, right? <laughs> how ridiculous that would be. You know, we, we actually see people as individuals, even within the medical system. 
And so when we think about a whole classroom of learners, we think about any population in general, is that there is no one-size-fits-all. And this is where the um, the design principles that are talked about in this volume um, and and are really enacted across so many of the vignettes that you're going to be seeing and reading about in, in, in this volume, um, they really come to life, is that each context is really different, right? So we can't just adopt what somebody else did, and this is where, um, as Antero was talking about at the beginning, that he's tired of these prescriptive models, is that it doesn't fit your context exactly. There might be some lessons learned, um, but the real gift and, and sort of genius of teaching and the art of teaching really comes from being able to take those ideas and adapting them to the local context. And that's, you know, all these public discussions have really lost track of that over time. So this notion of being a co-designer doesn't mean the teacher knows all of the solutions. It means that you're, you're co-designing things with the students. It means um, you're co-designing things with parents. You're blending and blurring those boundaries. And so um, uh, Nicole had talked about kind of an invitation to start this work and just knowing that it's a journey. Um, but it's going to be a really exciting journey. It's going to be one that's going to reinvigorate uh, your teaching practice and really make you fall in love with the whole industry again because of the amount of agency that you feel. But the, um, I, you know, I would just suggest the lessons learned from arts and design is just do something, a, a design project that allows you to learn something about the kids, something about their interests, and then that'll spark you to think, well, what else are they doing that I could connect to in the classroom? Um, for some teachers, they fall in love with Scratch because they see their kids using it in the out school hours and saying, hey, there's really educational content happening here. Others, it's Minecraft. Others, it's it's um, uh, the new kind of knitting that kids are doing with uh, the finger knitting and, um, yeah, the, 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 um, the rainbow looms. Rainbow loom, yeah. <laughs> so, so thinking about how can you blur that, and it could be a small project that's not integrated into the school day, could be something that then you ask the kids to write about, um, you know, but it'll allow you to kind of learn a little bit more about them and invite the whole self into the classroom. Um, so just think about what your experiment could be. My, my joys really come from working with NWP teachers in the co-design process of our, of our new interconnections curriculum. And that is, has been really wonderful to think about all of, the, all of the challenges that we face in a classroom and how can, how can we adapt that. And so, so that's been, been really great in, in that process of, of co-design. Great. Thank you. Um, Cliff, did you want to add to that or also talk about a design process? Yeah, there there are so many different ideas that just yeah. exploded as everybody was talking about. But you know, one of the things that I've been teaching, I teach uh, pre-service teachers, so you know, we just read, we're just reading designing group work by Elizabeth Cohen and John Goodlad. Anybody, I feel like that's been in teacher education the last 20 years have probably read pieces, if not this book itself. And so many different ideas that um, we're talking about right here in connected learning. Maybe this sounds bad, but it's not that revolutionary because it's kind of almost a synthesis of so many different like sound pedagogical things that we've learned in educational research for many years, but it's just kind of putting it together in the light of the context of today. And so, you know, many of the things you talk, we've been talking about, you know, having some kind of a challenge where a group of students work together collaboratively to tackle and problem solve and troubleshoot where the teacher acts as more of a facilitator and hovering instead of jumping right in and giving the answers. 
all these ideas are outlined in you know her text. I mean their, their text, and um, this also ties into kind of building on what Nicole described, what Bud talked about in his chapter about uh, being openly networked. That we just don't have to limit it just to thinking about students, you know, communicating with others with similar shared interests, but teachers as well. This is a challenging process, especially for one that's not been accustomed to doing it with their students who have also been socialized in a traditional type of teaching. But this is an opportunity where there's so many different you know, opportunities for you to talk about the challenges and brainstorm and you know, troubleshoot and problem solve with other teachers on the internet. Um, and finally, that, it just, um, I think it was building on what Kylie described, it just made me think of this uh, text by um, Vivian Chavez and Elizabeth Soep that was, uh, I think, about 10 years old now called Pedagogy of Collegiality and their work with youth radio and how that even though as adults they're working together in tandem with youth while obviously there is this power dynamic differential that exists we don't discount that but there is an opportunity that we can learn together and grow so even when I did my digital story at the first year I did not know a lot of it but I knew enough to be a step or maybe barely half a step ahead but they learn from one another and I learn from them as well and it just changes the whole learning, traditional learning dynamics of the teacher as the sage on the stage kind of uh, perspective. And I think that also changes the culture of the community of the classroom as well. That's great. Thank you. And um, given our time, well, I was going to actually mention the, um, oh, there it is. Um, so next week we actually are picking up on this, um, some of the conversations that Bud um, leads in the ebook. Um, Cliff about openly networked classrooms. In the, our next webinar next Tuesday will be Classrooms as Community Hubs, Developing Open, open Digital Networks. So encourage people to join into that and continue this great conversation. Um, so I wanted to move us in just because we're um, near the end here into um, really some final thoughts. And um, you know what I'm, I was going to Start with you, Ontario, because you know you your introduction is uh, teacher agency um, and connected learning. That's the the title, and I think what Cliff um, was just sharing is also very much about this both the teacher agency and the student agency in this work. And um, I don't know. I guess those are the thoughts that that are in my head, and I thought you might want to pick up on some of that. So, and then we'll just go down the line with last thoughts. Yeah, I guess. I guess just as a last thought, I'm, I'm hoping that um, for teachers who, who pick up and, and read this if, or read it again, you should just keep reading it, um, to, to read it as a reflection on your own practice, right, and, and to really think about this as, as a conversation and where does the work that's happening in your classroom or as an educational research, the work that you're doing in classrooms, how does that fit into the kinds of principles and ideas that are already being exhibited here? Um, and I recognize that people who are probably watching this or will watch the archive of this are all like we're catering to a select crowd of teachers and educators in that sense. So I wonder how do you, if you're watching this, bring in other members of your school community, right? How can you use this as an opportunity to engage in that conversation and build a non-virtual network of people in or around your school community, right? So I, I would encourage you to kind of think through, you know, what's the extent, right? There's there's a there's a couple hundred pages of a book or, or digital pages in that sense, but there's a lot more beyond that that, that can happen in your own school site. So Cliff, do you want to go or should we jump to Jason? I and think then come back I'll to you. my last thoughts with that one, so go ahead, next. No, 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 if you want to go, go ahead, and then uh, I'll come back. We'll come back to you, Cliff, if that's okay. So, Jason, do you want to go? 
Yeah, sure. Just uh, quickly, what's been most exciting for me as a teacher is the um, the, the shift in the audience. Uh, you know that that occurs when when students are submitting something. They're submitting a paper, and I'm the only person who sees that paper. Um, it doesn't generate a lot of excitement for those students. But the the real shift occurred when students started sharing their work um, with each other in the classroom uh, and publishing things online. Um, and there's nothing as exciting as a as a rising hit counter. Uh, you know, to kind of publish something online and 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 watch and see as, as other people you know view it and interact with something that you've published. So that that for me is what's been most exciting. Great, thank you, Kylie. Yeah, I think I think what um, Jason's talking about here highlights something that that I, you know I really want to put a challenge out to everybody who's watching today is that you know when we create these artifacts, whether it's the kid that creates an artifact or um, this community that creates this book and so forth, they really start to give us power and voice in the world. Um, other people can read it. We get to share those stories. It takes what is our ephemeral practice in the classroom and really turns it into something salient. And so you know we can use a lot of theory to explain it, but I think it really comes down to you know creating that trace, creating that artifact. And so I, I challenge all of you to think about all of the, the really ingenious things that you're doing in your own practice and how can you create an artifact to share out with the world. That could be a blog post, could be a Twitter feed post, could be just joining us today on, on you know the hashtag where we learn. Um, any, any way that you can start to create an artifact for your learning and the insights that you're generating will improve what you're thinking about, but will also help us to move forward as a community. And so, um, so I really, you know, really appreciate Entero's vision here. Um, you know, because I think what we do need is more educators really speaking to the complexities of the classroom, the deep um, value that that it has, and in, in designing these new classrooms of the future, and really creating that record, that external artifact that can be shared with others. That's super great. Thanks. Nicole? Uh, yeah, I think in the interest of time, I would just kind of boil it down to two major points that I've heard from this hour. One, one being that this really does help us to take our students seriously and take their interests seriously uh, as not simply childish hobbies, but as serious uh, manifestations of their identity. And they are developing into adults in, in this very connected society, and they're developing into citizens. And I think it's important that if we think about who we want our students to be and how we want them to not only consume but produce knowledge in the world, uh, that in inserting that into our classrooms is is the most important thing that we can do. Uh, and then also just this idea that uh, for people not to get hung up on the idea of connected learning as a, uh, a kind of distant philosophy, this is really good teaching. I mean, you think about bringing students' interests in, peer-supported learning, being networked as a student and an educator, these are not these are not um, revolutionary ideas, or they should not be, at least. These are things that we should be doing uh, in our practice, and this just gives us a new conversation, a new um, vocabulary to start doing that. So that's exciting. Um, Great. All right, and back to you, Cliff. Yep. What Nicole said. <laughs> no, seriously, I couldn't. I mean, I think everybody, all the different pieces, just agree with everything that's been said. So thank you. Excellent. Well, thank you all so much for making the time and taking the time and being part of kicking off this webinar series. As I said, we're going to meet every Tuesday. Um, there are five Tuesdays in April, so please do come back. Um, we encourage everyone to keep the energy going by using um, that hashtag, uh, where we learn, and as Kylie suggested, share some artifacts from your practice. As Ontario suggested, um, you know, connect with your local communities and 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 um, tap into some of these conversations together as colleagues. 
Um, and then also the Twitter hashtag Connected Learning is a place to keep this discussion going and the Connected Learning um, Google Plus community. Um, next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, as I said, we'll chat about the Openly Network Classroom. We have Janelle Benz from the North Star Texas Writing Project, Bud Hunt um, from the Colorado State University Writing Project, um, Justin Reich from Harvard X Research and also a fellow at the Berkman Center, um, who actually just wrote a nice review about um, this ebook, an interesting review in Ed Week, so we'll put a link to that too. And Ontario will be the host for the next show. So visit uh, connectedlearning.tv for more information about all of these series and connected learning in general. And thank you all very much for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thank